You may be seated. Thank you, Eric. Lord, we hope you enjoyed that. Amen. We love to sing your praise. Where is the inauguration of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Bible? Revelation 5. What is the inaugural ball called in the Bible? The marriage supper of the Lamb. His best friend, when he saw the Lord Jesus Christ as he appeared at his coronation, did what? Fell at his feet as dead in Revelation chapter 1. What color tie did he wear? He was girt about with a golden girdle. It wasn't a tie. His eyes was a flame of fire and his feet as burning brass. A two-edged sword proceeded out of his mouth. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the Lamb of God. All in one. What a glorious Savior we have. Do we love him? Do we love his work on the cross? Do we love the fact that he's coming for us? Do we love him communing with us? Do we love the seasons of refreshment from the presence of the Lord more than anything else? Lord, help us to love those spiritual things above anything else that we could ever have. He himself said, what if a man were to gain the whole world but lose his own soul? It's a terrible transaction. So let us turn to John chapter 6. Let us turn again to John chapter 6. Let's look for the Savior. Let's look for the Lord Jesus Christ in these verses. The first two important verses are 14 and 15, after the feeding of the 5,000. Then those men, John 6, 14, then those men, the 5,000 beside women and children that were fed, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. They correctly identified Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the prophet of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19. However, this is how Jesus responded in verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, To make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Is Jesus king? Was Jesus king of the Jews? Yes. They tried to make him king, but he would not let them. Even though he did let Pilate put over his head, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, because they were doing it for the wrong reason. Pilate was doing it based upon a conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ. These Jews were doing it because they wanted a vending machine to provide food for them every day of their lives. Then we come to two more important verses in this long 71-verse chapter, and they're verses 25 and 26. In between has been a day, a night, a storm. The disciples sailed across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. Jesus walked on the water to Capernaum, and they're all there. And these seekers, the ones that were fed, come after him. They're very diligent in trying to find him, but their motives have not improved. 
Verse 25, And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. He explains, your motive is wrong. You saw my miracles, but you're not responding to them correctly. You're not seeing me as God's son. You're not seeing me as Israel's Messiah. You're not seeing me as your redeemer and savior from sin. You're not seeing me as the way out of hell and the way into heaven. All you're looking for is bread for physical eating in this life. Not good enough. This is the only miracle recorded in all four gospel accounts in the life of Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have it. We learned it as children, but we did not know what was around this miracle. And what is around it is John chapter 6. All 71 verses are around the multiplying of the young lad's lunch to feed the 5,000. And we learn about seekers, seeker-sensitive ministries, church growth gurus, and all their ideas today on watering down the message and altering the environment and changing the venue in order to attract reprobates into the house of God, though it is no longer a house of God. It is their house of merchandise. Jesus once called the temple his father's house of prayer, and then he said, your house is left unto you desolate, and he tore it apart stone from stone in 70 AD by the Roman armies. Here we are looking at a section of this particular chapter. And we're at verse 27. We're working through section 5, which is Jesus reproving their carnality. And I've just read to you Verses 25 and 26. In verse 27, he said, Labor not for the meat which perisheth. They had, they had shown some diligence. They had worked to find Jesus. They'd stayed up all night waiting for him to show up at that desert port. Then they took shipping, crossed the sea to try to find him, and they did find him in Capernaum. And he admitted there in verse 26, Ye seek me. They were seekers. They were coming after Jesus Christ, but their motives were not good enough. And so we have to ask ourselves right now, right today, as we did in the first service, why are we Christians? Why were we baptized? Why are we sitting here today? Is it for parents? Is it for friends? Is it for for professional networking? Is it because of habit? Is it because we're looking for some of God's goodies? along with spiritual blessings. We want to be here for only one reason, and that is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. We're willing to prove that He's our Lord by giving Him anything from our lives that He asks for. We're willing to prove that He's our Savior by hating the things that He died for and getting them out of our lives. Lord, help us to see past the food and past the goodies and past the friendship and past the blessings of being in an organism of Jesus Christ to the one that gives it its life, the Lord Jesus himself. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, that is bread that you eat, 
And then it goes out into the draft, as the Bible would say. But for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. God sealed Jesus of Nazareth as the Savior of his people. He was named Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 because he would save his people from their sins. He was sealed with the Holy Spirit above his fellows. He was given miracles to prove that he was God's son. John the Baptist did not do a single miracle. Jesus did many miracles showing himself to be the superior of John the Baptist. He was sealed for this ministry. He's the giver of eternal life. And they were worrying about physical bread for their physical lives. And Jesus corrects them here in verse 27. Verse 28. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? They answered the Lord's rebuke by responding to his use of the word labor. Jesus said in 27, Labor not this way, but labor this way. So they take off the word labor and say, what work shall we do that we might work the works of God? Since you're talking that we need to do something that you're calling labor or that's a work, what work is it? Sounds good, doesn't it? People will say to you, I want to be a Christian. But they haven't heard from Jesus yet. When Jesus hears people saying they want to be a Christian, it's when the multitudes were following him, and he would turn to the multitudes, like Luke 24, Luke 14 and verse 25, and say to them, If you do not hate your mother, father, brother, sister, children, lands, houses, yea, your own life also, you cannot be my disciple. That is serious business. But we will hear people, and we see people claiming to be Christians, converting to be Christians, churches growing exponentially. They all want to be Christians. They all love Jesus. But they haven't met the Jesus of the Bible, whose standard of discipleship is so much higher than the one that they've created. They've created one that is sensitive to what they call seekers. They want to make it comfortable in the church for reprobates. That is no standard at all. But Jesus Christ lifts the standard highly, and he lifts it right here. They ask, what can we do? When you confront carnal seekers, they will often have a pretense of sincerity like this. You know, they rarely come right out and say, we want the free food while living in sin. Most seekers just don't say it that way. We love the free food, but we want to stay living in sin. They say, we want to be Christians. What do you want us to do? So they'll get baptized. So they'll join a church. So they'll invite Jesus into their heart. Where is the repentance that the Bible requires? Where's the books of magic being brought to be burned that that were valued at 50,000 pieces of silver? Where were men turning their lives upside down? The Bible says that the kingdom of heaven is taken by force by violent men who violently turn their lives upside down to follow Jesus Christ very differently than they lived in the past. What shall we do? This is a very good question if they had actually intended submission to Jesus Christ. Rather than ask God or Christ what he can do for us, we must serve him. 
and we should. But they only inquired, this 28th verse is only their inquiry to meet the minimum requirements for social welfare. What is the minimum requirement for nationalized food? For social welfare? For you to heal our bodies of all illnesses and for you to feed us every day? What's the minimum requirement? We don't want to tell people the minimum requirement. We want to tell people the real requirement, the full requirement. We want to be followers of the full gospel of Jesus Christ, not in the way that that expression is used in the world. They were glad to pay a low price to guarantee perpetual bread for their bellies. You can assume the same thing about the thousands that are saved or the millions that are saved with food and medical missions. The combination of need and free satisfaction of their needs will lead many to some sort of a Jesus. Sincere men have asked this question humbly and honestly to guide our souls. On the day of Pentecost, there was a similar question asked of the apostles. Men and brethren, what shall we do? When John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing, publicans, people, soldiers came to him and said, what shall we do? Each class in Israel wanted to know what John the Baptist was requiring of them in the way of repentance and a changed lifestyle. These people don't have a changed lifestyle in mind at all. They're willing to have their ears circumcised, their lobes cut off. I'm I'm making that one up, folks. Or circumcision. Listen, getting the foreskin cut off in order to have perpetual bread every day was easy for them. They would do it. But they weren't going to love the one speaking to them, humble themselves, grab him by his ankles, pour out their souls to him, and and ask him what they could do to serve him. As the Apostle Paul did before, he was the Apostle Paul. I appreciated all of you who told me that you were thankful to hear about Peter last Lord's Day, because Peter responded to a blessing of fish far different than these 5,000, didn't he? Right. When Jesus multiplied fishes for these people, all they could think about is perpetual food supply. When Jesus multiplied fishes for Peter and began to sink his boat, he fell on the deck in front of Jesus. Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. That is different. That is very different. I was written this week by people wanting to know, how do I examine myself in the way that you preached last Sunday? I tell you right now, is your attitude toward Jesus Christ more like Peter or more like these? There's two great examples in the Bible. Do you know that you're a sinner and unworthy of him? Or are you just looking for some more goodies? The contrast is huge. None of us should be here for any other reason but the Lord of glory the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior. That we might work the works of God. Their willingness was only to meet minimum requirements, as I've mentioned to you. We want to be careful ourselves to miss the true works that God has set before us. The idea a decision for Jesus changes anything is a terrible, heretical travesty. What must we do that we might work the works of God? We want to work the works of God. But he's told us how to work the works of God. He's told us where to be diligent. Make your call. 
Give all diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11 lists eight fruits of godliness in a person's life that prove they are God's elect. And we are supposed to be giving all diligence to adding to faith. Faith gets us only started. Faith only gets us started and we add to faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and godliness, patience, temperance, brotherly kindness and charity. It's those things. We examine ourselves for those things and those are the works of God. That's what God wants us to do because that proves our election and calling to everlasting life. The ideas of baptism, church membership and tongue speaking are just so many heretical ideas on really doing the works of God. Yes, everyone that believes should be baptized. Everyone that is baptized should join a church. Yes, yes, yes. But there's so much more than that. It's changing our lives to follow him. We want to pursue fruitfulness, growth, and spiritual religion far beyond such little temporal one-time acts. Many will creep into churches never thinking beyond basic faith or baptism. Measuring themselves by minimum qualifications, they never have any fruit. We want fruitful lives. Fruit is defined by the Bible. Fruit is measured by Jesus Christ. Lives that look like him. We want to be conformed to him. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. Since you've asked, this is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. In certain ways, they already believed. The reason they were following him according to verse Two, is because they saw his miracles, which he did on them that were diseased. In verse 14, they're following him because they realize he is probably the fulfillment of Moses' prophecy of the prophet. And they were correct, but they weren't doing it for the right reasons. And that ruined everything. If there's one lesson you should get out of John 6, the right doctrine, the right application of prophecy, the right identification of Jesus of Nazareth does not work without the right motive. It is unacceptable to Jesus Christ. He wants the motive of him as the Lord of glory, God on earth, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Savior from sin, and the one able to give eternal life. He wants us coming after him for a spiritual relationship in order to prove eternal life and to lay hold of it rather than just thinking about what goodies can I get for being a Christian. Jesus answered and said unto them in verse 29, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. This is the work of God. You know, I could explain to you what the difference is between subjective genitive and objective genitive about the prepositional phrase, the work of God. This is not God's work in us. That is taught in other places, though it's perfectly true. It's just not taught here. This is our work to please God because they ask, what must we do, we do, to work the works of God to please Him? So just make sure that you've got that clear in your minds. I've heard people before want to get some message about the sovereignty of God and regeneration out of verse 28 or verse 29, but it's just not there. This is the work of God. This is what pleases God. This is what you should do to please the God of heaven. Believe on the one that he sent. The only belief that counts includes repentance and service to Jesus Christ as Lord. The only belief that counts is continuing as a disciple of Christ. In John chapter 8 and verse 31, Jesus will say to them that believed on him, 
If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. So that a momentary faith, or a faith for a while, is not good enough. It is a faith that continues. These did not and would not believe, as they will show by going away shortly, they were not disciples indeed. Jesus will call them disciples. The Holy Spirit will call them disciples. But they are not disciples indeed. There are widows, and the church doesn't touch them in help. There are widows indeed, and the church is obligated. And it's a privilege for the church to help them. It's a huge difference in terminology. And these are disciples, but not disciples indeed. And they show that they're false with false motives and they're reprobates, as Jesus will teach here before we get to the end of the chapter. Section number six begins at verse 30. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Can you believe verse 30? What are they talking about? How wicked can men be? How corrupt and perverse their speech. What does verse 2 of this chapter say they followed him for? Because they had seen his miracles of healing. What does verse 14 say they were following him for? They had seen the miracle of the loaves and fishes. What did they say to him in verse 24, when, verse 25, when they arrived in Capernaum and found that he had got there without taking a boat? Whence comest thou, Rabbi? They saw miracles, and now they're asking, give us a sign? What sign showest thou then? If you want us to believe on you, show us something. Their response to Jesus' instruction was lustful desires, not humble submission. What sign showest thou? This request by the ungrateful and blind wretches should cause you holy anger. That they would say this to the Lord Jesus Christ. They ignore his healing miracles. They ignore the free lunch. They ignore walking on water and his mastery of the storm. They want more. Do you know why? Because it's breakfast time and they want biscuits and gravy. They got filet of fish sandwiches the night before. All they wanted to eat with 12 baskets full left over and now they want breakfast. Because they're hungry and their bellies are screaming it of them. They are belly worshipers in the truest sense of the word. Jesus dealt harshly with other Jews seeking similar redundancy in his signs. In Matthew chapter 12, the Jews came to Jesus and said, show us a sign. And he said, it's an evil and an adulterous generation that seeks a sign. And the only sign that's going to be given to it is the sign of Jonah. Kill me, bury me, and I'll come out after three days and three nights. Even though he had given them Thousands of signs, thousands of signs that were documented in that time by so many eyewitness accounts. Yet they're saying this because they want more. They have a motive in mind. Do you know what the motive is? It's what Moses gave Israel, bread every day. And so they're about to bring up Moses. Show us something, show us something. Reprobates want their lust satisfied. If you offer free satisfaction of earthly lusts, many reprobates will accept Jesus. Be honest. If you were hungry and offered free food, you would love Jesus, wouldn't you? Be honest. 
Medical missions is not better than Hollywood's generosity to world poor. Free food or drilling of wells in certain areas of the world will get you a passionate response. Jesus did not heal or feed to prove affection, but rather a supernatural man was present among them. Why has Jesus removed miracles of healing and multiplying small lunches so that we can't heal everyone's illnesses and feed them? When a market survey revealed that miracles were needed to make the Jews happy, what did God give them? The preaching of Christ and Him crucified. There was a market survey done in the New Testament for evangelistic purposes. The Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block. To the Greeks, foolishness. But unto them which are called, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. You know, it doesn't take any effort on my part to be able to preach Christ in a base, rude, crude way. It comes naturally. But all we do is we lay out Jesus Christ and make him manifestly plain as we can. And those that are born again, those that have qualified by John 6.44, will come to him. And the rest will get lost just like they got lost here to Jesus Christ. Why is New Testament charity for poor saints? It's never for the poor of the world. How many orphanages did Jesus visit in his 33 and a half years? How many trips did he take to Egypt to care for poor Egyptians? None. Jesus? I thought he cared about feeding everyone. We send food when you have a baby. We'll take care of your meals for a couple of weeks. We'll help brethren who are in trouble, and we've helped them before, around the world. But there's no such thing in the Bible of worrying about the world's poor, of feeding their bellies to get a decision for Jesus out of them. Because if you can give medicine to their relatives or give food to their bellies, they will invite Jesus into their hearts. You've done two things wrong. You've gone after their physical bodies, and you've set the bar so low. All you got to do is invite Jesus in, and we'll take care of you this way. But when you come preaching them, and you're poor yourself, and you don't have any food to give them, and your luggage was all in one suitcase, and there you are, and all you have is to lay out Jesus Christ rudely and plainly, the only ones that will ever respond... Because you've put the bar high, you're expecting repentance and discipleship, you've offered them nothing for their lust of their flesh, it will have to be a work of grace that they would ever follow that preacher. What does thou work? This asinine request is similar to the devil's tempting of Jesus in the wilderness. Why don't you turn these stones into bread and the other temptations? Verse 31, here they go. They're going to give him a suggestion for a work. You want to show us a sign? Here's the one we'd really like. If you really want us to follow you, here's what we'd like. Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They imply by this statement 
that our nation believed in God for bread. But there were people in that Old Testament that believed in God for a whole lot more than the bread of manna. There is no good reason to think any better of their statement due to the context of what Jesus tells me and you about these seekers. Israel needed food, making their way from Egypt to Canaan. But these lazy lusters could go earn it. But they wanted a free lunch. They wanted a vending machine instead of a savior. If you want us to believe on you, they said to him, then show yourself greater than our Moses. Because Moses gave us bread from heaven. And there are many verses in the Bible that say he indeed did. Verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Moses actually did give them bread from heaven, but it was not that bread from heaven, the spiritual bread that he is talking about when he used the word meat back in verse 27 and said, labor not for the meat which perisheth. Don't think that meat is limited to just what you think of as meat. Meat in the Bible is limited, is sometimes used for food in general, including bread in this particular case. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And he's going to explain as he goes on that he is the true bread from heaven. And that they need a relationship with a person rather than a schedule of a provision. They don't need a program. They need a person. They need the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And each of us must have that person. We cannot, be, we cannot settle for just religion. We right. cannot settle just for doctrine. We cannot settle just for knowledge. We want Him right. and walk with Him and live with Him and commune with Him and have Him fill us and by His strength do everything that He wants from us and speak of Him to others, not of what He has done for us physically, carnally, earthly, but what He has done for us spiritually, and eternally. Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Verse 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. The real bread is not manna. The real bread is the Son of God who came down to secure everlasting life. Verse 34. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. What a pretense. Watch how the Lord responds to them. If you were to go through this chapter and take two color, two highlighters, two different colors, and highlight their responses and then his responses, you would see the give and the take all the way through John 6, and you would learn about the real Lord Jesus Christ, the true one of the Bible, the one that sits on the throne of heaven at this hour. He is so different from the Jesus that they've created. He is so different from Satan's Jesus, Satan's gospel, and Satan's spirit. If you watch his responses... This response sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Doesn't verse 34? Lord, evermore give us this bread. The bread that he's just described is the bread coming down from heaven, being the Son of God. Lord, evermore give us this bread. Well, here goes the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 35, And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. 
Do you know what he said in that one verse? I am talking about a spiritual relationship with me. Any reference to bread or hungering is satisfied by coming to me spiritually. Any reference to water or any other beverage for never thirsting again is by believing on me. I intend by everything that I have said an entirely spiritual thing that you need to do. He blasts them right back with this 35th verse. Though they said, Lord, evermore give us this bread, he explains that the bread he is talking about is the person of the Son of God as their Savior, and they needed to come to him in repentance and embracing him in love and believing on him as the Son of God. He turned it to a completely spiritual relationship with Christ, and that's what better characterize our church, your family, and your life. We don't want any other reason for having a church. We don't want to come to it because we have fun. We don't want to come to it because we have friends. We don't want to come to it because we, the Lord blesses professionally and he has blessed us abundantly. We want to come because he is here who is the lover of our soul and whom we love in return. Amen. Lord, help us. Amen. Otherwise, this is an organization and we are an offense to the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to be an organism with his spirit flowing through us and uniting us together to love him more than ever before. Amen. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Do you understand? He took their ambition and their thoughts of food and turned them upside down. No reference at all to earthly food or earthly provision. This is entirely spiritual. Could Paul be hungry and full at the same time? Mm -hmm. yep. Yes, he could. Yes. Which would you rather have? A fat soul or a fat belly? Fat soul. A fat soul is one that is filled with spiritual marrow. Marrow is the choicest little morsels that are in beef or other animals. Inside the bone, I can remember as a boy, where's my father? My father and his two sons fighting for the marrow. Who was going to get the marrow from the roast bone that was in the roast on Sunday afternoon? It's choice. It's the marrow. We want fat souls, even if we don't have all that much to eat. Remember Lazarus having his wounds licked by dogs? But oh, what an end he had, didn't he? Yeah. When that chariot settled down beside him and those angels gathered up his spirit and put in that chariot and took him into the presence of God. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me, coming to Christ, is believing on him. The comparisons between coming and believing, coming and believing, are throughout this chapter. Don't think that it's something mystical, because it isn't. It's running to Christ, repenting before him, falling on your face, admitting that he's the Son of God, and believing on him as God's sealed Redeemer for your soul. It's believing on Jesus Christ in the fullest sense of the word of an active faith that changes lives. And so this 35th verse does not give them any credit in verse, th for verse 34 at all. Lord, evermore give us this bread. He just threw right back at them, I am dealing with something spiritual, and you don't have a concept about what I, of what I'm talking about. Right. 
watch. Verse 35. Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. There wasn't anything impressive about the appearance of our Savior. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now I believe that you can hear and see and understand that my message is entirely spiritual. Verse 36, but, but, he is drawing a terrible distinction here with this audience, and let it never be said of our church. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. You are a bunch of unbelievers. Now you say, where did Jesus say that? He said that back there in verses 28 through 28 and 29. They said to him, what shall we do that we might work the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. If they're asking that, what can they do to please God? And then Jesus said, believe on him whom God has sent. That means they weren't believing on Jesus yet. He pointed that out back then, and he's repeating it right now in this 36th verse. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. You have just said to me, Lord, evermore give us this bread. I tell you that the bread is a spiritual relationship with me by coming to me and believing on me, but you do not believe on me, so the bread from heaven, which is God sending his son down, does not have any meaning to you, nor do you have any relationship with him. All the Father giveth me shall come to me. Now, you know, we love to run into John chapter 6 and pull out verses 37 through 40, but that is not right with the word of God. There is a context here. John 6, 37 through 40, and I have to end, and I'm going to end momentarily. But John 6, 37 through 40, are not Jesus sitting at a luncheon or a diner explaining the doctrine of salvation to his apostles. It's Jesus confronting this audience and telling them they're reprobates going to hell because God did not elect them, he did not die for them, and they are not born again. I, I love the context of God's word. I want to understand what the verses are there for so that we get the maximum meaning out of them. And the maximum meaning is we've got to ask ourselves, am I a real believer in Jesus Christ? The fact that you believe the truth about election and Christ's limited atonement and regeneration by the Holy Spirit of God, a monergistic view of the new birth in verses 37 through 40 and then 44 and 45, that doesn't prove anything because the devils believe all of that. Right. What proves something is you loving the man Christ Jesus and wanting to live for him the rest of today. Loving him in your heart, giving him everything you have, willing to sacrifice your life for him and his people, wanting to give rather than get. The, Saul of Tarsus did not say, Lord, what will you give me if I follow you on the road to Damascus? Saul of Tarsus said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Isaiah said when he saw the glory of Christ, as it's described in Isaiah 6, said, here am I. Send me. He didn't say, here am I. Give me. What will you do for the Lord Jesus? If you're married, you have a spouse. If you're a parent, you have children. If you're a child, you have parents. You have a body of Christ. You have neighbors. 
You have money. You have time. You have speech. You have inputs. You have a television. You have all these things. Is Christ Jesus the Lord of all of them? Will you wives go home and love your husband the way that Jesus Christ said to love your husband? It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter how hard it is. It doesn't matter if you're hungry for his loving. Go home and serve him the way that the Bible tells you to. It's, all, it's our lives. Otherwise, when we read John 6, instead of me picking on Rick Warren and Joel Osteen and Bill Hybels and others, we need to be picking on ourselves. Where am I in John 6? When I say in church with my brethren, Lord, evermore give us this bread, does Jesus come back to me and say, I am the bread? Why did you just say that with the rest of this congregation? Why did you just say, as thirsts the heart for water brooks, so thirsts my soul, O God, for thee? You're only here because you're trying to get ahead in the world. You want to be, make the most money in the church, get the most advancement, be, pro, be promoted the most. What are you here for? You're here to get a spouse? We've got to face the chapter. I am the bread of life. He made it, it, he made it entirely spiritual, which was a total affront to what they were looking for. And then he told them, you do not believe on me, just as I told you a little while ago. Does this sound familiar to John 10? As Jesus uses all the verses of that chapter for the good shepherd. And he says, but ye believe not. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Just like this, right here. All that the Father giveth me, all the elect, the general rule is this right here. All the elect do believe on me. All, that's the general rule. There are exceptions, and we do, not ver we do not change rules for exceptions. We preach the exceptions, but we preach the general rule as the general rule. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. There is no issue with me in receiving men. But those men must come to me, coming, repenting, and believing. But you don't believe, as I've already told you, because this is a spiritual thing that I'm talking about. I am the bread of life. And you need to believe on me, and you'll never hunger. You'll never thirst if you come to me. Do you understand how he took it and turned it completely spiritual and flunked them all out? And then he goes on to explain, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The elect will come to me. What is he saying to the audience? You're not elect. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. I'm telling you right now, audience, Jesus speaking, I'm telling you right now about the will of God. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, the ones of verse 37, the ones that come to me, the ones that believe on me, that are very different from you, audience, that all that he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day. He's already taught what's going to happen at the last day in John chapter 5. There's going to be a resurrection of damnation. There's going to be a resurrection of life. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is the will of God about your eternal destiny. 
Everyone that God has given the Son of Man to save will come to him and believe on him. You have not come to me, even though you've seen me, you have not believed on me, because you do not really want the bread that's come down from heaven. And when you said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread, you were speaking as a lying hypocrite, because you don't even understand spiritual things. And I've just explained it to you spiritually, and that is what we want to have in our church. My brethren, we want verse 35, I am the bread of life. And he that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. We want to come to Christ. We want to believe on him. Then, verses 37 through 40 apply to us. Then we get to, you know, then they respond. If you're using a couple different colors of highlighters, you've got verses 41 and 42 of them murmuring against Jesus. Then Jesus answers them and says, murmur not among yourselves. He knows they're murmuring against him. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Brethren, do you know why we've come to Christ? Because the Father's drawn us. Lord, we thank thee. He's pulled us from all over the place. All sorts of activities. All sorts of rebellion. All sorts of sin. Praise his glorious name. He did not give John 6.44 on a napkin at lunch to his apostles about regeneration. He gave it to an audience telling them, that God had not done his work in their hearts, and that's why they weren't coming to him. No man can come to me. You murmurers, all you want to do is complain about what I've said. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day, because my Father will draw him. He'll come to me. He'll believe on me. He'll show the evidence of eternal life, but you don't have that in you, because all you want is food for your physical bodies from my miracle power. It is written in the prophets. It's even your own Bible tells you this, you Jews of Israel, and they shall be all taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Everyone that really knows the Father God of Israel comes to me because I'm his son, and it is written that way in your own scriptures. And he keeps on like this, but he gets harder. He gets harder, and he talks about them eating his flesh and drinking his blood, And they told him that it was a hard doctrine. And he said, well, didn't you understand that I'm speaking spiritually? Zach's favorite verse in the chapter, verse 63. I'm speaking spiritually. And because you're totally carnally oriented, you can't understand my speech. And that's why I told you in verse 65, he repeats verse 44, that no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. From that time, they threw up their hands, turned around, and went away, brethren. But you haven't gone away yet. And listen, you you have to listen to Balaam's transportation every single time you get together unless there's someone else in the pulpit. But you're still here because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life. Let's go to him right now. Let's run to him. Let's bathe his feet with our tears like the woman in Luke chapter 7. Let's fall down before him like Peter and say, Depart from me, O Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Do you know what Jesus does to such? He reaches down and lifts them up and says, Be not afraid. I was dead, but I'm alive, John. I'm jumping now to Revelation chapter 1, and I'm alive forevermore. And he's our Savior. He's coming for us soon. He's our King. He's our Lord. He's our all in all. And the lesson here is that we want our relationship with him based on that spiritual benefit 
and blessing of eternal life earned by his death on the cross rather than any other goodies that he might give us. We might find ourselves a Christian spouse. He might help us get promoted in the job. And you know we stand up in this church and we praise the God of glory for every one of those things he does for us. But we do not want that to even influence, color, or cloud our relationship with him personally for being our savior and for coming into this world and finding an ugly wretch in the orphanage of humanity and saying, I want that one for my son. We love verses 37 through 40. We love verses 44 and 45. We love verse 65 where verse 44 is repeated. But brethren, let's always remember the context because the context will lead us back to the lesson that we ought to get from this chapter. The main lesson, to examine ourselves. Have we truly come to Christ? Do we truly believe on him? And do we have a relationship with the bread of life himself? May God bless the preaching of his word. Amen. Amen. Stand with me, please.